0: Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable.
1: And I'm Luca Njanini.
0: And today, we're going to revisit build pipelines. We talked a little bit about this in Episode 6, way back in the day when we were in the early stages of this podcast, but we had a user question that uh, asked a lot of good questions about build pipelines, what should be done, what could be done, maybe what can't be done, and uh, we wanted to revisit this question.
1: Yeah, that's that's certainly a fun one, because this is at least for me this is how i got started with that whole devops thing i felt a, a certain need to stabilize the build processes of the teams that i were that i was working with and um, i you know i i tried this fancy new software that was called hudson back in the day which has now been called jenkins for about 10 years so I, I guess I'm giving away my age here,
0: <laughs> careful. you're showing your your age there
1: <laughs> exactly, but yeah, so this is this is just something that is strangely enough both fundamental and still fairly no, not very well known somehow in many circles,
0: yeah, and I mean I think it's it speaks to what we talk about in general, where embedded development is just lagging behind web development. Uh, in adopting these student new technologies, uh, but I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast have either are using build pipelines, continuous integration pipelines, or want to. Uh, and so I think it's way past time that the this becomes industry standard. So specifically, one of our listeners wrote in with a question, said, I hear lots about build pipelines, but not so much about what they can do, what they should be used for, and what they shouldn't be used for. This pipeline at work consists of build, static analysis, and unit tests. And he asks, what can and can't be automated? Specifically with respect to code reviews, we have a coding standard that requires certain format, capitalization for constants, suffixes for pointers. Is there a way to automate this sort of thing? So uh, this is a great question. I think maybe we start off by talking, maybe let's address his uh, question specifically, but then go back and kind of put them in the context of building this system up from scratch. So I guess uh, when we were talking about before we hit record, you know we had some notes what can be done, and your your immediate response was all of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's true though. like it it might not be reasonable to expend the effort, but but fundamentally, this just you know everything we do with computers can can somehow be automated, can't it?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would guess, uh, I would say design reviews cannot be automated. You can certainly streamline any preparation for those or whatever, but I mean there in the end, you know, the, the creative process of, of writing code and, uh, and reviewing it to make sure that it actually meets the goals. Uh, I would say that can't obviously can't be automated, but, uh, anything that is wrote, uh, specifically he talks about, uh, conforming to coding standards that absolutely can be done. Uh there there may depending on how you do it there may be more or less investment up front but it absolutely can be done. In terms of let's see. Uh, yeah, let's let's maybe talk about uh the building this up from for, from from the lowest steps. Certainly whenever you set up a build pipeline the absolute first thing you should do is do the builds. Do the builds for every target and every different type of release if you have a debug build, if you have a release build, if you have build with special flags to support some different environment, um, if you have multiple different targets that you're supporting, that's the first thing you do is just actually do the build in every different combination of, of build parameters that you have uh, and do that first and email you if it breaks. That's where you start.
1: Exactly. So I would actually, now that I, that you were saying it, I would think you should go one step further back and say, before you figure, before you fiddle with pipelines, get version control set up.
0: Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. I, I, so so back in episode six, I think we talked about the prerequisites to setting up a pipeline. So go listen to that episode again. You ha- You have to get version control set up. And before you put anything in a pipeline, it has to be, you have to be able to run it from the command line. So if you're not able to do a build from the command line, you you have to do that first. So if you if you have to go into your IDE and press click the button with your mouse in order to do a build, the first thing to do before you set up a pipeline is to pull back out and and get that working, and obviously have your your code in version control. Um, Where people are beyond that, so now they're actually wanting to set this up, and I would say the first thing you do is just do the builds and email you if it fails.
1: Exactly. I think that that is such a crucial first step, which surprisingly many people miss, which is that this whole thing is supposed to be a feedback loop. So I urge you, whenever you do something with your pipeline, not to just consider the forward direction. You know, how do I build? How do I test? Whatever. But also to consider the feedback direction. How do I learn about what happened during the build? How do I learn about whether the tests passed, et cetera, et cetera? Surprisingly, many people forget this. And I think, um, I, you know, before the show, I went on a little mini rant about how I think pipelines are actually a bad word because they give this sense of unidirectionality. And that's exactly right. not what you want. You want this feedback. So you would, you, you would like to have a pipeline that sort of bends back on itself, which... I think breaks the analogy, (laughs) but you know, this is supposed to tell you something about your system and the fact that, that, you know, a, a completely built binary falls out the other end is a nice bonus.
0: Right. And, and I would say that, that, uh, even more people make the mistake of setting up that feedback, the system where it emails you if it fails and then ignoring it. (laughs) <laughs> and, yes. and no I'm serious in terms of like having the discipline like if the pipeline fails you fix you drop everything and you fix it period like that's that's you have to start having that discipline because it because if you allow it to fail and you ignore it then it, then it's completely lost its purpose the whole purpose is to make sure that what comes out the other end has passed every step along the way and if you tolerate things coming out the end that fail steps along the way, it, the the whole benefit of this has been lost.
1: Exactly because you can't have trust in your feedback anymore. Right, like the system is claiming that that the bill is green, but it's it's probably just a watermelon, right? Green on the outside, red on the inside.
0: <laughs> right, and so so yeah, getting into that discipline and. Um, you know, I've seen I've seen people kind of go for a long time with the build failing, and at first sh- they they ignore it because it's some innocuous problem, like oh, I, you know, maybe I have maybe I have some static analysis in there, and I know there's a little problem, there's ugly code, but whatever, it's fine. But then that masks. Then you keep getting emails that the pipeline has failed, the pipeline has failed, and you're like, ah, it's just that simple problem. But no, it's actually a more serious problem that has been allowed to sneak in there uh, because you're. You know, you've gotten numb to the notifications that it's bad. You know, that's kind of a, a common problem across <laughs> lots of lots of aspects of, of of human existence, as it were, where we get numb to these alerts um, that something is wrong. So you you have to keep your your build process pristine to avoid just that. Um, okay, so so people have set up builds for every target. They're getting emailed when it fails. Um, I would say the next two steps to add are running unit tests on host not on target running unit tests on host and uh then some kind of static analysis step thoughts on that
1: yes so um i might consider actually doing it the other way around because static analysis is kind of you don't need to do any extra work for unit tests you actually need to write Mm. the tests so maybe that's another hurdle you need to get over over um and I really want to stress that you should make it as easy for yourself to go in the, di- in the right direction as you can. So maybe start with static analysis. After that, very closely, of course, comes unit tests. And I want to stress that there is no need to retroactively create unit tests for the code that you've already written. You know, it's, it's fine. If you have old untested code, but it's working, then it has objectively passed all the tests, right? <laughs> so don't don't get bogged down writing unit tests for things that have already existed for a long time instead focus on where the risk is focus on the new code obviously if you start changing old code then then it becomes new code and it becomes risky again and that's when you should start adding tests and i think we discussed this in in previous episodes but the the point is uh don't make it harder for yourself than you have to even only having like 5% code coverage is much better than this, than zero. So whatever makes you go from zero to greater than zero, I'm happy with.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely a great point. And, and again, like we keep stressing over and over with all of these kind of agile activities, you start small, you start in a digestible chunk and get that working. You don't try to bite off more than you can chew at once. Um, that's, that's kind of the fundamental premise of, of agile is that you get something out there, something working, something shipped in this case, like you are shipping a, a new step in your pipeline, and then you can flesh it out over time as appropriate or not. Like if, if you, again, like Lucas said, if you have a bunch of legacy code that has, you don't have unit tests for, but that's been battle tested in production, that's lower priority to add unit tests for than new greenfield things where it's, it's low hanging fruit. Um, if there's particularly risky parts that you're, you're nervous about, then there are techniques you can use to go back and add unit tests, those bits of legacy code. So specifically our, our, our questioner, our listener who wrote in asked about coding standards. Um, and so this is one where, uh, so I, I've, I have some experience with this recently, uh, and it, it can take some investment. Uh, so there are, uh, Static analyzers who will take, um, you know, essentially a coding. You you need to write a rule set for this static analyzer that corresponds to some coding standard. It could be MISRA, or it could be the um, the bar standard is is kind of a well known one in the embedded world.
1: Yeah, or I think Google, I think Google also publishes their coding standard, standards in a way that is consumable by automated checkers.
0: Right. Right. I, I i don't have experience with that, but i I certainly believe you um so so for instance, you know there's a a static analysis tool called c p p check and you would need to get this uh coding standard in a rule set for that particular static analysis tool and then you can run it and I would say it is better to go and pick an existing one for which there is a rule set than to come up with your own proprietary coding standard for your company where in our company. We're going to make sure that all pointers start with P um, or that we have this special capitalization scheme, or we're going to mix and match our favorite from whatever, like the specific, it is much more important to have a coding standard and stick to it than it is to try to optimize said coding standard, especially when it comes to the format like just pick one, and it. And if you're going to just pick one, then pick one for which automation already exists. Don't make a lot of work for yourself. Um, and I, you know, I would even say that if you're, it, it, even if you come in this uh, in the middle of a project where you've had a coding standard in place and you've been wasting time in lots of code reviews, making sure it conforms to this coding standard, and you want to start automating this pick one that you can automate and then like take a morning and just update your entire code base to that coding standard and like move from then on forward because because again for the remainder of the project you'll save that time in meetings where you're like oh you didn't begin that one with an underscore you don't you know you're using camel case instead of whatever i would really advise you to stop enforcing coding standards manually and start automating them and pick one that makes that easy to do
1: definitely i've seen firsthand how much work can flow into especially coding standards because then you get into the most beautiful bike shedding discussions where people can debate endlessly about whether whether points should start with a p or with a p underscore or or what have you and oh whatever just you know just take something
0: the brace isn't the brace is in the new line, or whether it follows the if statement.
1: I mean, it, it's not without uh, without reason that within the Usenet community there is this abbreviation one TBS, the one true brace style, <laughs> because there have been there have been famous flamewares about this back in the eighties. So yes, and. You know, save this, save that brain power, save that effort, save that time for the important discussions, for the stuff that the the coding standard checker can't find. Like you know, remember, code is written for consumption by humans. Otherwise, we'd just be writing binary. Right. So make sure that your code is actually consumable by other humans. Other humans can understand it. Uh, can understand the meaning behind that. I I still sometimes uh, think back to a project that I was. Um, involved with where we were building a an aircraft simulator for industry purposes, and it had this variable called door state, and it was a boolean variable. And to this day, I'm trying to remember whether true meant the door was open or whether it meant it was closed.
0: Huh. <laughs> that so, I, I have all my booleans like are or all my variable names are extremely verbose and very clear. Like it's it's b underscore is door closed true or false like <laughs> exactly you know exactly what it means i yeah I, I feel for you
1: yeah exactly so you know let let the syntax checker uh, or the, the the style checker worry about whether it really started with b underscore and instead debate whether it should be called door state or is door closed or something else entirely
0: i remember uh this is a bit of a tangent but uh, uh there's a uh i forget his name now uh, i found him on hacker news but he uh, wrote uh, one book on game programming patterns and then got into programming languages and wrote a book called crafting interpreters. And I think he worked at Google, Google on the dart language. Um, We'll put it, we'll put it in the show notes. I'm just blanking on his name now, but he worked on the code formatter for the dart language and, and it was actually built into the language itself, a code formatter. So that it might be, it might even be the same with go. You're right. I, I, I haven't used go, but I, that does sound familiar. Uh, where it's actually part of the core language to enforce a, to at least run a tool to enforce a certain formatting style uh to try to end these debates but those of us who work with C and C++ decide on your damn brace style have the hour long debate and then pick an automated tool and don't talk about it again
1: <laughs> actually don't don't even don't even decide on a brace style don't even have the debate just do whatever the damn tool tells you to
0: fair enough Okay, so so we've kind of beat, beaten uh, coding formatting and coding standards uh, to death thoroughly, <laughs> thoroughly. So in terms of, of the next things that that should be done, this is starting to get into like if you've done what we said up to, until now, if you have CI pipelines doing all your builds, running a static analysis, running unit tests, running code formatters, and you actually listen to the feedback from your pipeline, if you get there, you are better than 98% of the people out there and you're in really good shape. Yes. So good on you. Going beyond that, going the next step, and these are things that I have played with, but have not, like I can't say I do this on every project, but in terms of generating statistics on your code and maybe having a dashboard that tracks those statistics over time and just gives you a really good visual indication of some uh, of metrics of your code, that is a kind of a a new a new level that you can go to that i think especially over time with a decent sized team can really give you uh, a lot of powerful insight um it can even just be you can uh b- build a couple of scripts to analyze the map file you know from your from beta executables to look at memory usage over time uh and you can see oh like it, it's it's you can depend on your engineers to uh, do this on their own every once in a while. Hey, let's maybe remember to look at the map file and make sure we're not going to run out of RAM in a couple of weeks because we're consuming it. at. You can, you can see it being consumed over time. And you know at one point you're going to run out and it's going to be a panic. Everyone's going to have to go in and go through and look for places to save ram and it's going to be kind of a a big halt to your development velocity that's the kind of thing you can see coming and if you build it into a dashboard you is really easy to see coming um what are what are some other things that you can think of uh luca that that might be on on such a dashboard where you're tracking things over time or getting really good visual insight into your metrics
1: well there there's just a couple of things that um just like you said you, you you want to have um, data where you kind of see coming what's going on. Like, how's the build time doing? How's your binary size doing? Um, yep. Is the number of tests running, going in the right direction? Um, are you happy with your, cab- with your code coverage numbers? And just to be very clear, I'm very happy with uh, 10% test coverage provided it's the right 10%. Um, of course, I'm even happier with like 70 or 80 or 90 but but let you know. Let's be honest. This is this is a um, this is a trade off, and maybe leaving ninety percent of the code untested is is a decent trade off. After all, you're not testing your your libraries, are you? Your third party libraries. So you have lots of ah! code that you personally have not tested in there. You're just trusting that they work well. Um, so I I think dashboards are really good at giving you this this very immediate feeling for the health of your code and and this is why you really should have them so just like you say that you can see stuff coming you don't you don't have to wait until it trips some kind of you know magic magic line you know you run out of ram or something you can already tell that something's not quite okay and you can do something about it before it becomes really serious and and like it it stops your forward progress until you figure out how to reduce your memory footprint or something.
0: Right, we've had a we've had a Joe Schneider from Dojo Five uh, on our podcast some time ago. I think he was our first guest. It might have been like episode ten, and he's building a platform at his company called Embed Ops, uh, where these kind of dashboards is, uh, you know, an integral part of of the product, and so you know maybe we'll have him back on at some point to kind of talk about the specific kind of things they look in there i know that jack ansel who's very well known in the embedded space runs his better firmware uh better firmware now or uh, something like that um uh, seminar uh, he advocates for statistics uh, and and tracking metrics of code quality uh to be more objective uh and i would think you know Again, all, all, any of these metrics that you can apply to your code, you can then track over time and see the trends. Uh, and while there's a little bit of danger, I think, in, in going a little hog wild with that and and building up this a huge complicated set of metrics that isn't actually useful, if you just focus on, if you do it a little bit at a time and focus on what provides value, I think you can un- unlock a lot of value by, by moving in that direction.
1: So fine. Now we've got. What do we have? We have. We've got code analysis. We've got unit tests. What's the next step? We've got coverage.
0: Again, like so. We've already. We've we've now pushed beyond those initial few that got you in the ninety eighth percentile. You know, you started building dashboards where you're tracking things over time. I mean, that's that's pretty darn good. Now, I would say the next step. Okay, now I see you smiling. So so, running things on target. From your build pipeline, uh, and, and th- you brought up a really good point when we were talking about this before we hit record. My immediate reaction to that was like, "Oh, that's kind of messy." Like, you know, like you can do it; it just requires some investment, and it's kind of scary. And that's because I'm an embedded developer; I'm not a web developer. Like the idea of, you know, connecting up my my pipeline that's in the cloud to my local lab uh, you know, opening up a port on my firewall. Like I, I say that, like, I know what I'm talking about. Like I know, I know relatively little about the web world. It's, it's intimidating to me. And so that's where I kind of view that as, uh, if you want to do the effort of, of taking that step of running something in your lab automatically on every code commit, you can do it, but it's going to be some investment. Whereas you're like, what's the big deal? <laughs> because you have more experience in web development and those technologies aren't scary to you. Well,
1: I've I've precisely zero experience in in web development, but I I have been tinkering with like systems and networks a lot more than you have apparently. Fair but enough. the point is it's not such a big deal. Like it's just it might feel foreign to you to have your um, CI system in the cloud up on I don't know Azure, or GitHub or, or something. Um, and so because you have this architecture, it becomes a little bit awkward to reach back into your local lab and, and, you know, and hit your target that's sitting on your desk or something. So it's not really that it's harder per se, it's just that you, that this particular choice of architecture might have made it somewhat more involved or somewhat more awkward. Um but in those cases, you know maybe the easier thing to do is to just run your CI locally. you know if you if you were to use GitLab, for instance, you could use hosted GitLab or you could have your own local GitLab machine running um, and use the exact same scripts, obviously. and And that would take care of quite a lot of the complexity of of you know reaching back into your local environment. But in any case, I completely advocate for then going on to the host. You know, j- just like like all of the agile approaches uh, tra- say...
0: Target, mean? Target
1: I, yes, you of mean, course, right. the target. I'm sorry. Just like all of the agile approaches say, go go full thickness. Like, you know, build a complete slice of your system. In that case, your build pipeline. Make it more complete. You've been on the host for quite a while... You've done unit tests et etc et cetera now take the next big step and go on the target at least for deployment I mean just ensure that you can do automated deployments from your pipeline onto the onto the target and then maybe think about doing even more involved stuff testing for instance on the target
0: yeah and I so i'm I'm kind of looking around my my office right now and I've got you know, my project that I'm working on right now, I have one instrument sitting on my desk, you know, and so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do a bunch of code and then I'll flash that and I'll do a bunch of t- testing on the instrument. And so in that case, I would say the 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 th- one of the things that changes when you start automating your tests onto the target, especially from a built pipeline, that kind of by definition has side effects. Like it's no longer this pristine, like in a Docker container on the cloud, no side effects running on its own. You know, the fact that it's flashing on your machine and starting to run things, that is, that is a side effect. I would advocate maybe you set up a lab with, a, with an instrument or, you know, if you're working on, I say instrument because I'm working on a medical device. You set up some of your devices in a lab where they're dedicated to this process. They're dedicated to being the runner for your build pipeline. In my case, you know, this this instrument is very expensive. I only have one, so I can't really make that, you know, guarantee that this is always going to be ready when I push a commit to the cloud. But taking that step and and being able to run tests on target from your build pipeline and get output back out of it, like there's a, there's a lot of pieces of infrastructure that you want to have anyway that that enforces you to have. You have to, you know, flashing something onto your target automatically but then scripting some set of commands or some set of tests and then getting output from those tests in an auto- and then parsing that output in an automated fashion you want to move in that direction anyway even if you never hook it up to your build pipeline even if you just say on your development machine with this device sitting next to your desk and you say you type in a command run test and a whole bunch of things happen on your target but it's automated you're not doing it manually then once you've done that then it's actually it's it's actually a relatively small step to hook it up to your build pipeline to get a dedicated device, put it in a lab, hook it up to the network and and link it up to your build pipeline um, but there's actually a lot of things that have to happen even before you can hook your your target up to the build pipeline
1: and that's exactly why you should do it yep. um because in <clears throat> in a sense you're moving the the real value of this pipeline away from being able to iterate quickly even though that's of course great value but also now you're reaping the benefits of code as documentation you have a a definite list of things that need to be done and how they need to be done in order to flash your target run your tests whatever the case may be and there is so much value in in having that written down in you know in the con- concise and provable format which code is, as opposed to some, some wacky readme file that's going to be wrong uh, and outdated even before you finished writing it, is big, big value, especially in larger teams. Like if you're trying to onboard another colleague and you can just tell him, look, here's the, here's the deployment script, run it, it works. I know because I've done it 10 times today already.
0: <laughs> there is so much value in that. Well said, absolutely.
1: Yeah, and and just to say, yes, it may be that you only have the one holy prototype, and you can't really afford to keep it hooked up to automation all the time. I've been in that situation, and then you and then you find a different way. Maybe you just do nightly test runs. So maybe the least the, the last person to to leave the lab will will set the target to auto mode or something. And then the CI can run a nightly test, and and at least you have feedback in the morning. And feedback on both whether the the flashing process still works and the build process still works, and also, obviously, if the tests still work. And even if they are just trivial smoke tests, but you are continuously proving to yourself that, yes, you can put new versions on the target whenever you want to, and, yes, you can still interrogate the target and and ensure that, at least on a fundamental level, it's still working. Like we did that with... um, with a big machine tool that I was working on a couple of years ago. Um, it was a big prototype. It was, I don't know, it weighed a couple of hundred kilos. And it was, I, I suspect it would have been strong enough to kill someone if they w- would have been stupid enough to stick their head inside the cabinet because it had the, those really beefy, powerful linear motors. Sure. So we th- there was actually a safety risk to running this thing in an automated fashion. So we only had the automated test run overnight. But every night we would flash the new version onto this target and we would just just move the axis. That was all we did. It was just a smoke test. Can we still move the axis? But that alone gave us so much more confidence in both our deployment uh, process and our tests and our product itself that it made a tremendous difference.
0: Do you happen to remember if that ever failed? Like, did that ever actually uncover a problem?
1: It did uncover problems. I'm I'm trying to remember if it. I think the the problems were mostly like stupid mistakes by the developers, not so much like that the code itself was problematic or anything. But even that, of course, had tremendous value. So. I I think just because it was so so complicated and involved to to set this whole thing up, you know, there was always something that was going wrong, but it was really important to know what kind of things would be going wrong, and we got really good at fixing
0: them. Right, right. Yeah, you, you exercise your own internal processes of, you know, troubleshooting and fixing these things when you – it's just – it's all part of leaning into the pain of something that's painful – do it more often so that it gets less painful and you get better at it. Um, And, and this is a great example of that. Uh, We had written down some, first we wanted to cover uh, some pitfalls and maybe stupid mistakes (laughs) that uh, you can get into when making your build system and then going back and reviewing the, the goals of the whole, the whole effort. But let's, let's talk about some of the pitfalls.
1: Yeah. So I, I think the most fundamental mistake that I see people making is to not pay enough attention to the build systems. Your build scripts are production code. Treat them with respect. Refactor them. Make sure that they are in pristine condition. Just like you said, Jeff, if, you know, if the build scripts are wonky and you can't really trust the feedback, then, then you're in trouble already.
0: And in the sense of, of of treat them with respect and have them in pristine their condition, you know, their they're code, they need to be written in an understandable way. You can't have some bash script that's 100 lines long with no comments that uses all of the wonderful little bash tricks that you learned back when you were a Linux sysadmin, but all your developers who are actually working in C and Python look at this and can't understand it. Yeah, it looks it. like light so, noise, right? <laughs> It looks like line noise. Yeah. Um, Pearl especially was famous for that kind of obtuseness or opa- opaqueness rather. So, yeah. So, so like treating the, those build scripts are code and should be made for humans to read, not just for machines to execute.
1: Code as documentation.
0: Yep. A uh, one pitfall I've, I've run across and, and have fallen victim to and had to dig myself, dig my way out of is everything that runs on the, on the build server, should it would be it should be equally easy to run that on your local dev machine. The best way to do this is to have everything containerized, whether it's in one container or a couple of different ones. You know, it can be it can be a couple of different Docker containers depending on the size and whatever you can make your own judgment. But the the process of setting up a build machine should be one step automated easy and whether that build machine is some server in the cloud or some server in your server room or your local laptop or your local desktop um, setting up a build machine to run the builds and run this entire pipeline that should be automated in itself in a single step um, and that's how you ensure that it's just as like you can troubleshoot you can do everything locally that you can in the cloud one caveat to this um, that I found is is the cross-platform nature of things. When your local build machine is Windows and your server is running Linux, this can get a little messy. Docker mostly takes care of this for you. Running Docker Linux, Linux Docker containers on your Windows machine pretty much works, but there can be some subtleties. And what it does mean is that your developers have to learn the basics of Docker. And Docker can't be a complete mystery to them. Uh, so this is, <laughs> Luca, again, I can see you kind of giggling at this. But in the embedded world, um, there's just a lot of people who are more old school. I I dare to say, like, I might fall under that. Learning Docker was, like, when I first learned Docker, it was just like, ugh, it's another damn tool I need to learn. but. I'm all about automation and stuff. I just want to type stuff in the command line and know what's happening. There are a lot of developers out there who kind of are are a little more old school. They're in Windows. That's a lot of the tools for Embedded or some of them are Windows only. And just the, that's another point of friction that you may have to push through, but you got to push through it. It's it's worth it. It's just just know that going in that the Windows versus Linux in terms of setting up this pipeline may produce some hiccups and you just got to steamroll over them.
1: Yeah. So another mistake that quite a few people make is that they put too much intelligence into the build system, uh, or rather t- into the into the pipeline.
0: Ooh, do tell about this.
1: Yeah. So this is one of one of the anti-patterns, I think. That you you fire up your Jenkins and then you've got your your pipeline workflow and then you type a couple of shell commands in 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 the text box and this is what what gets run in order to, say, build your system. Don't do that. You should have uh, you should have one set of scripts, commands, whatever, that do all of that work, that, for example, run unit tests or that build your product or something. And those should be called equally by programmers and by the pipeline. So, like, let's say you're using make because you're old school like that um Mm. guilty then (laughs) exactly um then then you should totally have a a make target that is i don't know make build and one that is make unit test and one that is um make coverage etc and your pipeline should be super dumb and it should really only call make build and then make unit test there should be no intelligence in the pipeline itself everything should be um checked into your source code repository, and there should be no difference between what the programmers themselves run and what the pipeline runs. There shouldn't be two separate realities.
0: I, okay. I, I see what you're saying. I'm, I'm going to repeat this back just to make sure I understand. So so in your build pipeline, you have a whole bunch of steps, and each one of those steps calls a shell command. That's what a, That's what a build pipeline runner does. Each of those steps should be extremely simple and should not be some big complicated script that has been built up in Jenkins. Each step should be a single command that's just as easy for a developer to type into their own machine. You know, whether... You know, so for mine I actually like I'll, I do a lot of my building with make because you know I'm a consultant I give stuff to my clients and it needs to be standard tools that they can easily pick up. but for unit tests I use seedling so it's but it's seedling test all. it's not brrr, like some huge thing that i built up at Jenkins. any complication should be captured in a script that's in your repo uh, and summarized in some easy command that the developer is using. okay I, I really like that point. that's a great great point.
1: Yes, and uh, like it, it has the dual purpose of ensuring that you're capturing all that needs to be captured, um, and of making sure that there are not separate realities. And you know, otherwise you will you will become dependent on your specific installation of, say, Jenkins or GitLab or whatever, um, because it captures crucial things about your build process, and you will regret it. I know I have.
0: That is a fantastic point. I love that. Let's see. so what are some what are some other pitfalls? Uh, a big one is one we've already talked about uh, forgetting about the feedback, <laughs> uh, or even worse, getting the feedback and ignoring it. So again, it can just be as simple as if any step of the pipeline fails, you get an email and you drop everything and you fix it. Like if you just do those two <laughs> things to start,
1: which by the way, I am a big proponent of being really ruthless. If something fails in your pipeline, your pipeline dies. It does not try to keep going and maybe build at least half the system. No, it just stops dead, and that way it forces you to fix it.
0: You can't use the executable that comes out the other end because there is like nothing comes out the other end.
1: Exactly. Make like make ma- make it make it obvious and make it painful because that will give you um, an incentive. To fix the problem, and you know, if you've if you've done stuff right, then it won't be hard to fix the problem because you know some change from the last five minutes broke it. You can just undo that change.
0: Got it. All right. I think we've we've got a, a good set of pitfalls here that to avoid. Um, let's just go over. Let's just go back and and zoom out and review the goals of this whole process. So, talk a little bit about that, Luca, before we before we wrap up.
1: Yeah. So, what what is the goal of of Setting up build automation. I think maybe maybe the 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 most obvious, but also maybe least interesting goal is that of speeding up your process. And I mean that's nice and all, but I think it's only 10% of what you should really be going after, right?
0: Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. I think it in the end, a lot of the techniques that we're talking about, they will speed things up for you. But even more so, they give you confidence and trust. And that's what gives you speed. Exactly. And having that confidence enables you to go faster.
1: Exactly. So you're really aiming to build up this trust in your build process, right? You run it a million times a day. You know exactly that it works. Um, You want, of course, the trust in your product because you run your tests a million times a day effortlessly. You want to be able to trust in the reproducibility of what you're doing you know if if some part of your infrastructure falls over so what you can set up another one you know just by typing a command and then sipping coffee as you as you watch the machine do its work and of course you get all of that wonderful documentation through code which is important to share it with your colleagues uh, to share it with yourself six months down the line when you're thinking, how the hell did that work? Guilty. Yep. And of course, you get all of the feedback loops, the tiny ones from, can you even still build it? To uh, code analysis, to unit tests, to can I flush it on the target? To can I still run tests on the target? Do my, I don't know, maybe you have really involved tests that, that... that stimulates some inputs on your target, or that sends some outputs in your target, or something. Does that whole thing still work? There is so much power in in knowing that yes, it is proven to still work. Day after day.
0: Hundred percent agree. Hundred percent agree. Cool. Anything else you want to uh, cover before we wrap this one up?
1: No, that would just battle the waters. I think that was an awesome episode.
0: I think so too. I think that's a good place to call it. Luca, where can people go to find you online?
1: So the easiest way to get in contact with me is just to go to Luca.engineer. Yes, that's a proper URL. Um, and that will lead you to my website where you can find ways to contact me and and read even more of my rants. Um, and please feel free to reach out. I always love to hear listener questions. They make for the, the most awesome episodes.
0: Absolutely agreed. Yeah. Several of our episodes have come directly from, from listeners uh, submitting questions to, to one of us. Uh, likewise for me, uh, you can go to jeffgable.com. Uh, Gable is like table, G-A-B-L-E. Um, and again, there's a contact form and, and I would love to hear from you. So please reach out. All right. This has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable.
1: And I'm Luca and Johnny.
0: And we will see you next time. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.